Hi in the hills of Happy Valley, Oregon. Welcome to Until We Meet Again, brought to you by the kind support of Cornerstone Funeral Services in Boring, Oregon, and friends like you. I'm Elizabeth Fournier. This radio broadcast is an expression of our common ground of mortality because, after all, we are all in this together. Today's reading, it's edited and adapted from Sarah Manis. It's called Angels in the Stars. God saw I was getting tired as he put his arms around me, as he whispered, come with me. There is a place for you in heaven where there is no suffering and no pain. All you have to do is look up to the sky and know that you will see me. As I am an angel in the stars, what a great place to be. I am an angel of God and a sparkle I shall be. Know that I'm watching over you. Just look up and see. I'm looking, watching over you. Please don't be sad for me. I'm your angel in the stars, where I am happy now. You will see, and one day, you will be with me. My guest today is Carolyn Miller-Parr. There's so much to say about this lovely lady. She's a retired judge. She's a mediator. She's a writer. She's a public speaker. She has wonderful degrees, and I'm going to list them all because, by golly, these are on her wall, and she's taken the time. She has a BA from Stetson University, an MA in English from Vanderbilt, and then a law degree from Georgetown Law. Judge Parr, but she wants to be called Carolyn. She's practiced peacemaking throughout her meditation practice, and it's called Beyond Dispute. Carolyn, thank you for being here. And what is your peacemaking practice? What is this all about? What What is my book about? Is this, the peacemaking practice. Yeah, the beyond dispute and your media. Oh. Yeah, your mediation practice. I don't think a lot oh. of people know exactly what that is. <laughs> okay, um, beyond dispute is a mediation practice, and mediation is a process for making peace between people, where there. are there are disagreements that even may lead to trials, court suits. Um, and the mediator doesn't decide the right answer, but the mediator helps the parties come up with solutions that work for everybody. So it's a good process where a neutral person who's trained um, sits down with the parties and each one gets to talk and they're not supposed to interrupt each other and the mediator listens carefully and makes sure uh, he or she understands exactly what they're hearing, reframes things that are said in a harsh way so they can be heard more easily by the other person. And uh, then the parties usually brainstorm about what each one really needs, not what they want necessarily, but what they need. And it's almost always possible to give people, everybody, what they need. Uh, And uh, so it's a very uh, inexpensive way. It's a lot cheaper than everybody hiring a lawyer and going to court. It works very well with divorces and issues around child support and custody and those kind of things. But more recently... We started seeing cases of uh, adult families where the disputes were often between the siblings about the parents, about the parents' care or about uh, who the parents would would name for their power of attorney or for their health care proxy. Oftentimes the parents were... um, 
had some form of dementia. But if the even when the parents were perfectly rational, sometimes the children start fighting about what the parents should decide. And uh, one of the things that we always said is the parents have to be here in the room. They have to say what they want, and they can hear what you all say, and that may change what they want. But if it doesn't, they have the last word. Uh, and as, a, as an older person myself now, I value the dignity and uh, the um, autonomy of older people. I think it has to be carefully guarded because so often uh, they just feel run over by their children. I'm learning a lot by reading your book, Love's Way. I'm learning a lot about the fact that including children in your care, the idea that you've lived all these years on the planet and what you have to say and what you have to think does matter, even if you are somewhat slipping and having some mobility issues, either mentally or physically. Um, Carolyn's written this great book called Love's Way, Living Peacefully with Your Family as Your Parents Age. And I love how you talk about the mediation. It's almost like having a talking doctor or a counselor, but really looking at it from a legal point of view and kind of getting things done. Huh? Right, right. Um, there's a lot of uh, law involved in growing older. Everybody needs a will. Everybody needs to name someone who can be their power of attorney if they can't make decisions any longer about their money or about their health. Um, however, what a lot of people don't know is just because they give a child or someone else they trust their power of attorney doesn't mean they've given it away and they can't make their own decisions so if a, if a parent for example has a dispute with a child who has the power of attorney the parent can cancel the power of attorney and the parent can overrule the person so I hear about people being put in nursing homes who don't want to be there and who are perfectly rational, and I think they don't know that they can pick up the phone in the nursing home and call a lawyer and get out of there um, because they think they've given away their power of attorney and so they're helpless. It's not the same as a guardianship. Now, if a, if, if a court appoints a guardian for somebody that's very serious because they can make all the decisions about everything. Um, but in a family where if somebody has the power of attorney, it's, it, it needs to be monitored by the parent, by the person who gave it. And uh, they don't always have to give it to them either. They can write, write their name in there and have it notarized and all that, and they can keep the piece of paper until they're ready to use it. Or, you know, like if they're going on a trip or something, then they're going to want to give it to the child. Um, <clears throat> but it is something that can be abused, and so parents have to really be careful uh, to give it to people they trust. And, and the person who has it has to be careful to do what the parent would want, not what they would want. People don't always realize that power of attorney is not a person. It's actually, legally, you're giving somebody the power of attorney over your affairs, over your finances, over your medical health. So people will come into the funeral home and say, well, I'm the power of attorney. And they'll say this after mom or dad has died. And unfortunately, I have to ask if they're not the durable 
power of attorney, then that was merely an appointment, merely a piece of paper. And when the person dies, that dies with them. It's a designation. Right. Even if it's durable, it's, it ends when the person dies. If it's durable, it survives if the person uh, becomes incompetent. But if the person dies, the power of attorney dies, too. And the will or whatever uh, a trust or whatever document the parent left uh, as a testamentary document will take effect. Talk to us about elder speak and why that is such a demeaning thing. I'm sorry, can you say that Oh, again? absolutely. I'm sorry. My cold is getting in the way here. So in your book, you mentioned elder speak. And tell us what oh. that is and why that is just so darn demeaning to elder parents. Yeah, elder speak is when a young person talks down to an older person. And they, they don't mean to do it. They, they mean to be affectionate sometimes, where they call you honey or sweetie or... Uh, or use the plural, like, what would we like for dinner today? Mm. Uh, those are all things. Or if someone calls you me, for example, young lady, and I'm not young, and I <laughs> may not be a lady either, but, <laughs> uh, you know, it's kind of like patting you on the head. Um, the, uh, another thing is sometimes you become invisible, like um, you're call a plumber and your son or daughter happens to be at the house with you when the plumber arrives and the plumber starts asking them what's wrong and as if you're not there. Um, this sometimes happens in restaurants that the waiter or waitress will ask a young person in the party what the older person wants. Uh, so I think younger people just have to be conscious and aware that that may sound like it's kind and sweet, but we don't need to be patted on the head. We're not children. My father had hearing aids, and when we'd go out to eat, they'd always ask me what he wanted, and I said, oh, yell out all those pie selections. He wants to hear all of them. I mean, he really did want to make his own choice. He knew very well what was going to be on the end of the fork and if it tasted good in his tummy or not. And I guess that sounds like I'm elder speaking down to him, but you know what I'm saying. He, he, know, he yeah. knew what he wanted to eat. He knew he could read the menu clearly. He just had a little bit of a hard time with the softer tones, but you bet he wanted to order his Reuben the way he wanted or what have you and not have his kid have to pick out the cheese and fries. So same thing goes, I think, with that, too. We see that as a disability, maybe, and something that, oh, well, you know, we don't want to bother them or, oh, it'll just be easier if we ask that allegedly healthy-looking, competent young person. But I can see if you live lots of years on the planet, there is that autonomy that you start losing. Mm -hmm. And I'm mm -hmm. sure you, you probably see that with being involved with law, being involved with writing, being involved with just your lifestyle in general, when you become kind of invisible, you sort of do live on the edge. Yeah. Yeah, I, have a, I had a colleague, a judge colleague, a female, who was riding in the plane one day, and uh, the flight attendant said, what's your first name? And she looked at her and said, judge. Oh, yeah, well. That comes first. <laughs> oh, I like it. Yeah. I don't. What, how, what do you follow that up with? I'm not quite sure. 
So you've had one heck of a colorful life. You have so much. You're a devout Christian. You live in Annapolis, Maryland, which is a whole life on its own with all that fresh crab and the beautiful bay. And then you also had a a life that happened in Washington, D.C. as well. Yes. I um, was married 56 years to a Secret Service agent named Jerry Parr. And he's the agent who saved President Reagan's life when he was shot. Um, So we had the opportunity to write a book about Jerry and his life. Um, But Jerry pushed the president into the car and threw himself on top of him and told the driver to take off, which he did. Um, And uh, when he set Mr. Reagan up in the car... uh, Nobody thought he was shot. Jerry didn't see any blood anywhere. He ran his hands all over him, looked up in his hair. And he didn't think he was shot, but he thought maybe Jerry heard him when he threw him on the riser of the limousine. Mm. And uh, so Jerry decided they would go to the White House because it would be safer than going to the hospital. Um, But a few seconds into the trip, the president took a napkin out of his pocket and pressed his lip and there was frothy red blood on it and he said oh i think i cut my lip and jerry thought to himself no that's oxygenated blood and so he changed you know his his instructions to take the president to the hospital which was very gutsy because there was no Secret Service agents at the hospital. Nobody knew they were coming. They they radioed ahead, but they only had two or three minutes for the people there to get ready. And uh, But that decision saved the president's life because he got out of the car and he wanted to walk in, and as they walked in, he collapsed. And his blood pressure was so low they couldn't get a reading. And he was bleeding internally. What happened was the bullet had hit the... Uh, frame of the car and ricocheted between the in a little crack between the door and the car frame of the limo and it was the shape of a dime so it was just a little slit under the president's arm and when the president lowered his arm it stopped the bleeding but inside it was bleeding everything was bleeding so he almost bled out before they could even get him in surgery um, but um, that that some people said Jerry saved the president twice because he saved him once by getting him into the limo, and then the second time was by making that decision. It sounds like he did. It sounds like also that President Reagan trusted him very explicitly oh, yeah. and knew that if your husband raised a red flag, then it was really important to pay attention to him. Well, you know... Uh, Jerry was head of the White House detail, but there was a lot of uh, discussion at headquarters whether he would get the job or not when it became open, because he was 50 years old, and had always been a younger man. And uh, so, but they decided Jerry was in good shape, and he had good judgment, and he could do it. And later, several people pointed out that if it had been a younger man, he might have been afraid to manhandle the president that way. Interesting, yeah. Yeah, um, so and, uh, if he if if he hadn't thrown him in the car, you know, he wouldn't have lived. So this guy, this guy Hinckley, got off six shots, 
and four of them hit people. Oh. So he was a good shot. And um, one of them was uh, had hit the back of the limo as they were pulling off. The, there was a you know a bullet mark. It didn't go through because it was bulletproof glass. But uh, the president definitely would have been killed if Jerry had politely said, "Sir, would you get into the car?" Yes, yeah, outside <laughs> had a discussion about it, huh? Yeah. Nice. I know your husband was very active in his church in Washington, D.C., and I also read that he was a former co-pastor and a retreat leader and a spiritual director. So how wonderful to be married to such a man of God. Well, he was, and he did all that, most of that, after he retired from the Secret Service. Um, He went to Loyola of Baltimore to get a master's degree in pastoral counseling. And he did that because he was a person that had a, just a natural compassion for people and a way to relate to them. Uh, and he could sense when somebody was in pain, and they just gravitated toward him. But he didn't know what he was doing in terms of counseling people. Uh, and he had a good friend who committed suicide, and that just made Jerry think, he wondered if there was something he could have done or said or something that would have uh, prevented that. And so uh, he, he got a master's degree in pastoral counseling, but it was strange because on the day he graduated, when he walked down the aisle, it was one week after he had gotten an honorary doctorate from Eureka College, where the president was uh, a student. And so Jerry had his doctoral robe on while he went down to get his master's degree. Everybody was teasing him. And, of course, he was much older than most of the students. He had already served a full career in the Secret Service. Um, but they liked him, and they, you know, joked about it, him having his doctorate um, to get his master's. You must have one heck of a glass curio case in your house to have all of your degrees and <laughs> to have all of these <laughs> all of these wonderful things that the both of you combined have earned in your time here. Yeah. Well, Jerry passed in 2015. And um, so my kids have most of that stuff now. Nice. Um, but, uh, yeah, I was very proud of him. Would you mind going into a little bit about the end of his life and how that walked through? Well, it was hard because he... Uh, he did develop dementia. It never got officially diagnosed because he refused to go see a neurologist. But we had a gerontologist for our doctor, and she was certain it was Alzheimer's. Um, and so he he was really sensitive about it. He didn't want to acknowledge that anything was wrong. And in a way, that made it harder. Um for one thing, he still was in demand to go on television and be a commentator whenever any kind of security issue came up at the White House. And so people wanted to call and invite him to come on their show. And I had to start intercepting those calls because he just couldn't do it. He would have embarrassed himself and the person who invited him. Um, for example, he couldn't remember who was the current director of the Secret Service and things like that. Um, Or he didn't really understand current events that were going on. 
so that was hard. It, I had to make up stories about why he couldn't do it, and you know, I just said, "Well, he's just not taking interviews anymore in the eighties." And well, we'll come out to the house and we'll do it. Uh, no, <laughs> but um, that was hard. It's hard to see someone you've known all that time, you know, fade away kind of and change. Um, I, I sad that he had to end his life that way. Um, but he, he didn't die from that. He died from heart failure, uh, cardiac failure. And, um, so he didn't suffer as long as many people do with Alzheimer's. He was 85 though when he died. Well, the end with that sounds relatively comparative to Nancy Reagan and what she had gone through and the same sort of oh, thing goodness, where she had yeah. to start kind of pulling her beloved Ron back from events and kind of protecting his image too, huh? Well, yeah, she had so many years. He lived many years after yeah. he was diagnosed. Um, it does kind of take over the caregiver's life, even when you have other people to come and help you. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you love this person and you want them to not feel abandoned and, you know, to know you're there. They want you to be there. You're the last one they remember usually. So uh, it's hard. I was so happy, though, that we were able to write the book. Jerry and I wrote it together. I, I wrote it, but he told the stories, and I wrote them in his language and uh, used some of his speeches. And he had a great gift for words, actually and a sense of humor and all that. And uh, I kept thinking, somebody needs to write about his life because it's it's been amazing. Uh, he worked for five presidents and uh, many heads of state. He took care of Queen Elizabeth when she was here and uh, all kinds of people. And um, so he just, he was, you know, not... He was humble. He didn't want to brag about himself or anything. Uh, So we had a friend named Del Wilbur who wrote, decided to write about the day the president was shot. And he he wrote a book called Rawhide Down. And he was spending a lot of time in our house talking to Jerry. And he turned around to me one day and said, you know, you really have to write this man's life. And I said, you got to persuade him. So he did. He persuaded Jerry, and he helped us get an agent and all that. But we wrote it, which was nice. The, we, the agent had to be convinced that we were capable of doing that before. Uh, he wanted me to hire a, a ghostwriter, and I didn't want to. So um, that that worked, but I was 74, and Jerry was 83, I guess, when the book came out. <laughs> and uh, so that's kind of late to start another career. That's when I became an author. <laughs> well, it shows in your writing and in your passion, and a ghostwriter would not be needed because this book is fantastic. What Carolyn is referring to, it's uh, Jerry Parr with Carolyn Parr. It's called In the Secret Service, The True Story of the Man Who Saved President Reagan's Life. And in the back here, behind the acknowledgments, is a timeline, and it really starts with... Jerry being born and his steps through what he does personally, 
and then with his education and with the military and then professionally. And I mean, you get to see everything about all of a sudden Nixon nominates Gerald Ford for vice presidency. And there's the Panama Canal. And it's really interesting because you see the history of the U.S., how your husband played a role in it. And like you say, five different presidencies. This really goes through the Carter administration. Um, it's wonderful. And I really liked your index on the back. The indexing is really great for skipping around research, all of that, because this is a true story. Yeah, thank you. Mm-hmm. You know, Jerry's life was so interesting because he never, his youth, no one would have ever thought that he would do what he did. No one in his family ever went to college. He didn't graduate from college till he was 32. We were married, and he finally decided he'd go on the GI Bill, and I encouraged that. And uh, that's when he graduated, he got his job with the Secret Service, and that was the age limit at the time. And uh, he just got in under the wire. But before that, he had been a lineman, a power lineman uh, for an electric company for 10 years, and he had been a pallbearer for eight guys during that time uh, because it was a very dangerous job. People fell off of poles, and they mm. got electrocuted. And um, So when Jerry went for his interview with a Secret Service, the agent who was interviewing him said, well, you know, you... You might have to die for the president. You might have to give your life. And he said, uh, why do you want to do this? And Jerry said, well, it's safer than what I've been doing. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, I was kind of wondering, what is the interview process like to have that job? <laughs> That's great. Was that really a question? Yeah, that really was That's... a question. <laughs> you know, they want to make sure whoever they hire isn't just there for the glamour of it, that they know they could die. Um, and... Uh, yeah, that was a real question. Nice. So the movies make it look very glamorous, makes it look pretty safe, and just sort of makes it look like, well, you'll be the, you know, the assistant to um, the, the famous person. Everybody else around you has the guns, and they're taking care of things in security. But no, it probably it pretty much fell on Jerry quite a bit. Yeah. No. And it, you uh, spend a lot of time when you're a young agent just standing post outside somebody's house in the rain and the snow. and. Mm. <laughs> It's not so glamorous for a while, but, you you know, as you mm-hmm. get up in the upper reaches, it's, it is glamorous because the president associates with movie stars and all kind of powerful people, and you you can be an eyewitness to history if you're interested in that, which he was. Um, so, yeah, Jimmy Carter invited our family to come on Christmas Day to Camp David, Um where uh, it's very rural, it's very like a camp, you know, with log cabins, and um, he wanted to go there to escape from Washington during the last Iran crisis when all our people had been taken hostage from our embassy, and uh, he felt bad for Jerry to have to not be able to stay with the family for Christmas, so he invited our family. So I got to go to Camp David. Uh, and with our three kids, and uh, that was that was a fun, glamorous thing to do. Yeah, yeah, it sounds fantastic. And if we had more time, I'd ask you all the questions, such as the decor and did you have to take your shoes off and what did they serve for snacks. But unfortunately, we are at the end of our time. I wanted to thank you so greatly for coming on and letting people know the two books we talked about today that are available on Amazon.com are Love's Way. 
living peacefully with your family as your parents age. And then at the end, we spoke about In the Secret Service, the true story of the man who saved President Reagan's life. You've been listening to KKPZ 1330 AM, The Truth. Thank you so very much to my guest, Carolyn Miller-Parr. And until we meet again next week, be excellent to each other.